I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. How was the air show? (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, I'm waiting for you to start us off because you always start us off, except for the one week that you didn't. And it threw our whole game off. It's hard. Also, we haven't recorded in two weeks, so I'm like, I've forgotten how to do this. (laughs) Hello! This is a podcast. (laughs) This is a podcast. People have consented to listen to us. Is that (laughs) not the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life? Just Um, as a reminder, I know it's been a while, I'm going to pick a psychology topic. mm, Good reminder. You pick the history. Yeah, my name is Allison, and I I talk about, you know, history, kind of. (laughs) People, places, and things. Items. (laughs) Uh, Is that a hint for what we're going to be hearing about from you today? A little bit. Yeah. Well, (laughs) my topic I discovered was not as historical as I thought, but it is. It is, but it isn't. You know, the best part about this for you is that you can really pick anything in the whole world and be like, I'm covering this today (laughs) because history. Listen, if it happened more than one day ago, (laughs) I can cover it. That's a good point. (laughs) I mean, I did kind of position myself into this, this place where I am. I have a wide range. But so do you. Um, I have a little bit. I need at least people to have already researched the things that I'm going to be talking about because I'm not actively researching. Well, there you like, go. It saves you some research. <laughs> but when you put it like that. Well, when you put it like that. How was the air show? You just got back. The air show what, is was, it, was it phenomenal. Oshkosh? Yes. So it's uh, air, air Venture is what it's called. Oh. It's the Experimental Aircraft Association, the EAA's biggest event of the year. I'm sorry, experimental? Experimental. Um, I will have to send you pictures of some of these airplanes. They are the weirdest looking shits, and they all fly. (laughs) Weirdest looking shits. (laughs) Oshkosh is the busiest airport in the world for one week out of the year. Um, So when you, we flew in, it was me and my dad, my brother, my brother's girlfriend. Um, We flew in and landed among 10,000 of our closest friends. There you go. We pitched a tent under the wing of our airplane, and we camped out for a few nights. How fun is that? It's so much fun. There are multiple air shows a day. We showed up. This was my first time going for um, Women Wednesdays. So (gasps) Wednesdays, they really focus on women aviatrix. Oh, fuck yes. And I am here for it. I'm working on my instrument license. So it was really cool to, like, go and talk to people and ask questions. And they have workshops. And, like, you can learn how to build airplanes while you're there. And, like, recover wooden wings. Like, shit that you can't just learn anywhere else. Wow. That's amazing. How do you guys decide who's going to fly you there? I... So... This year, I get to fly the majority of the time because I'm working on my instrument license, so Mm -hmm. I need the extra hours. Perfect. So Um, you were able to fly most of the way there. Yeah. And my little brother, if you're listening to this, it's time to get your private license, sir. Like, it's been years. (laughs) (laughs) Do not shame him. This is a safe space. Um, I... So... What we typically do is, my dad doesn't do the majority of the flying, though he's always in the right seat in case we need anything. Mm-hmm. Jacob and I switch off between gotcha. who's going to be the primary pilot. So Steve's so riding shotgun. Steve's riding shotgun. I flew on the way up. Jacob flew on the way back. Nice. Um, which is the same way we've done it for the past, yikes, four years? Three awesome. years? However many times we've been in a row. 
That's um, so with cool. the exception of 2020, of course. You're so cool. Thank you. I feel super cool, like landing an airplane and walking away from it with my head held super high. Yeah. And then you... my dad's like, uh, we are not the coolest airplane here. Like, keep your head down. <laughs> do you have your aviator glasses on? <laughs> I absolutely do. So uh, now that Oshkosh is behind us, we can start looking forward to what's going on in August. And yes. I am super excited because we have a big trip coming up. We do. We're doing our... We've done a podcast retreat, just the two of us. Yep. This we is that like really early on. Well, the original one was when we had been recording mm-hmm. and we hadn't released yet. So yeah. it was release week, I think, or right before release week. I think it was right before. It was for my birthday. It was, so it was for right your before birthday. release week. And it was super exciting. But we are doing another podcast event in August. We are heading to Nashville. Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee for a podcast prom, which is hosted by our BFFs over at Chick Shit Podcast. And we are so excited. (laughs) I cannot wait. So it's going to be on the 21st, Mm -hmm. which is the Saturday. And basically, we're all going to meet up. You can wear whatever you want. It's an opportunity for podcasters to talk to each other, network, yeah. promote their podcasts. It's also an opportunity for listeners of podcasts to meet up with some of the people that they listen to. Mm-hmm. And it's just an opportunity for all of us to just kind of hang out, have yeah. a drink, have yeah. a walk around broad. What's it called? Broadway. Broadway. Broadway yeah. Which we love. So we're going to be there. We're going to be fancy AF. Um, I don't know what that looks like for us yet, but yeah, I haven't picked my outfit. Go shopping. Should we coordinate? Oh, that would be it's fun. Be, it's hot as sin in Nashville. That's in true. August. But this gives me like second chance prom vibes, mm-hmm. which is so second chance prom is um a opportunity for for queer people to mm-hmm. wear whatever they wish they could have worn to prom. Sure. Um. And I think that that's kind of the same vibe that LJ and I are going for. Yeah. So I am thinking about wearing like a structured jumpsuit Fuck or something. Yes, love a jumpsuit. Like on you. working on a more androgynous vibe. Love it. Yeah. I might wear one of my gowns. I have so many gowns. You do have a lot of great gowns. Like really beautiful gowns. Thank you. Let me see. Let me see what I've got. But anyway, if you are interested in um, meeting up with us at the pod prom, reach out to our friends LJ and I at Chick Shit Podcast. If you follow them on their social media, they have posted information regarding the event. We've also posted stuff on our page. Yeah. So you will definitely not miss it. But you can also shoot them an email at chickshitpod at gmail.com if you have any questions about specifics. Yep. Or you can email us and we will, uh, we're in pretty con- pretty constant communication with Chick Shit at this point. We have point, a group so chat. It's the highlight of my day. It's so fun. I really <laughs> love them. You know, the thing I, that's the most unexpected about podcasting is how many cool people we've been able to connect with mm-hmm. and like just really clicked with. We're also supportive. Mm-hmm. They're also supportive. It's just been amazing. Yep. This is the time to build each other up. So speaking of building each other up, I know that we talked a while back about wanting to share some of our reviews. And I think we had a really cool one the other day. Could you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. So we've been really pimping out the the stickers 
yeah the stickers situation and our magnet oh yeah we've also gotten a lot of cool feedback about people have seen our our magnets on social media Mm -hmm. um those are new and those are also going out to reviews um we're gonna put some stuff on we're gonna we're developing our merch you guys we're not we're not quite there yet yeah actual angel ashley is drawing up some stuff it's all incredible Um, but it is soon we promise so this review is a poem and i'm obsessed with it um i'm gonna read it to you now let me get my william shakespeare voice on i was supposed to say (laughs) asmr voice the highlight of my commute when other podcasts leave a brain itch unscratched this intersectional knowledge is where i find myself attached as a psychology student, I switched to Australian. I can't. I'm just going to read it. As a psychology student, there's facts I never knew, as the stories they tell come from out of the blue, which is not wrong. <laughs> but with ideas like a light switch flip, I learn something new and laugh with each quip. Humor abundant and knowledge unbounded. This podcast is my favorite, and I'm so glad I found it. I love it's it. It's so good. We will be framing that. It- our houses will each have a framed copy. <laughs> I want it cross-stitched in a pillow. <laughs> so beautiful. Thank you guys so much for s- the support. Um, and we just appreciate each and every one of you. We really, really, really do. Yep. Um, so with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into it. What are you? What do we got this week, CA? So this is going to be kind of an interesting transition. Okay. So relevant because we're talking about the people you need to survive. And in podcasting, you need other people to survive. Sure. In a zombie apocalypse, <gasps> you got to plan your survival team. Oh. So, Allison, yes. what is your zombie apocalypse survival skill? What are you bringing to the table? So, I've always said I want my sister in my cash cab. But as far as my, like, zombie apocalypse team. Oh, not your team. Your skill. Oh, my what skill? What are you bringing? Like, why should I have you on my team? Probably the charisma. That's true. That's, <laughs> That's a, all you're I bringing have. us all together. That's all I have. <laughs> um, we should also get an Instagram question going because I really like oh, we gotta yes. be choosing our team strategically here. I'm writing that down. Uh, my zombie apocalypse survival skill is being able to tie and untie knots. Hella okay. skilled. That's good. Secondarily, I can fly the getaway airplane. That's in a Handmaid's Tale situation, that's invaluable. Yeah, that's really what I bring to the table. That's the only thing I bring to the Granted, table. Granted, they would never allow you access to an airplane because of can the I vagina situation. You, right. Can I tell you how many dreams I've had about stealing airplanes? Ooh. It's been multiple, and I don't know why, because, you know, I have strong morals. When but they said you wouldn't steal a car, they're like, no, but I'd steal an airplane. I'd definitely steal an airplane, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I'm under no illusions. I could not survive if I couldn't do either of those things. That's what's getting me onto the surviving gotcha. zombie apocalypse survival team. So our Patreon, patron? Patron. Our patron, Margaret, picked out our topic for this week, and I am super excited to talk about it. Yes! Margaret said that she's interested in the psychology of post-apocalyptic movies and shows like The Walking Dead, Handmaid's Tale, Hunger Games, etc., And she's curious about the psychological reasons the society may devolve into these types of scenarios and why people become doomsday preppers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is an excellent prompt. It's such a good topic. I was like, Margaret, 
Can we be best friends? (laughs) It's like she knows us. Exactly. So there are actually three pieces to this prompt, and we're going to have to break them down a little bit. But I'm going to try my best to cover all of them. I'm so excited. (laughs) So if I start talking too fast, like I need you to give me the hands because I'm super excited. Okay. And I know I talk fast when I'm excited. Um, So on the one hand, we are looking at the psychology of doomsday preppers Mm -hmm. and the apocalypse. Okay. Part two is exploring dystopian societies. <gasps> and those are two very different things, mm-hmm. like apocalypse, dystopia. Sure. Because dystopia can exist in a post-apocalyptic modern world, or it can exist completely outside of that. Okay. And then we've got a fun overlap with conspiracy theories. Ah, uh, birds aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers. (laughs) So these are three things that I love to talk about, and we're looking at the intersection of all three of them, thanks to Margaret. Um, So I'm going to try and do this all, but we might come back to some of these at different points. Okay. Well, we know conspiracy theories will be a revisiting topic throughout this narrative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I'm going to cover just a smidge because there's a psychology behind conspiracy theories that you don't cover in your history of conspiracy theories. My body is ready. Look at all of these intersections. Look at them. Are all things connected? Yes. Yes, they are. (laughs) Um, First, we're going to talk about dystopia because I freaking love dystopian novels. Like it's one of my favorite genres to read. So I'm going to kick us off with a quote, and I want you to let me know if and when you figure out what book this is from. Oh, it's geez. also a movie, and okay. I, it's an author that I know you've read. I don't know if you read this book, but you know the author. Okay. I'm scared. All right. Quote, it was possible, no doubt, to imagine a society in which wealth in the sense of personal possessions and luxuries should be evenly distributed, while power remained in the hands of a small privileged caste. But in practice, such a society would not long remain stable. For if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike, the great mass of human beings, who were normally stupefied by poverty, would become literate and would learn to think for themselves. And when they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had to function and that they would sweep it away. In the long run, a hierarchical hierarchical is that right oracle (laughs) society was only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance any idea okay so my first thought was animal farm but then that was quickly uh shooed away my next thought was utopia but then the language doesn't fit so i have no fucking idea okay you're really close with the first one it is george orwell oh okay it is 1984 ah okay 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 Okay, so the book 1984, for those of you who need a quick reminder, was actually written in 1949. So this was written the year before my dad was born, and it's still super relevant. It focuses on the consequences of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and the oppression in socialist regimes. Orwell himself is a democratic socialist, but modeled the book off of the authoritarian government in Stalinist Russia. Yeah. More broadly, the book explores truth and facts within politics. So they're constantly like changing things and deleting facts where they're no longer relevant and reprinting, you know, all media so that you can't go back and actually find true answers. Oh. 
Um, none of this is actually really important or relevant for the conversation that we're having. I just wanted to give a quick refresher for those of you who vaguely remembered reading this book at some point in your lives. Um, also, I never read it. What? No. Mm-mm. It's so good. Yeah, I need to. Um, it's amazing. I think you'd love it because I know that you like Animal Farm a lot. I and really I have a do. quote from Animal Farm in here, too. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, I love dystopian novels. And admittedly, I don't watch a lot of dystopian movies or TV shows because they really stress me out. I'd rather read it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, other really popular and famous um, dystopian novels include Animal Farm, mm-hmm. Brave New World, Handmaid's Tale, The Giver, Fahrenheit 451, Divergent, Hunger Games, Parable of the Sower, Clockwork Orange, The Maze Runner, The Power, and so a partridge on and so in a pear tree. And a partridge in a pear tree, and we will be highlighting these in our Instagram story, so no need to rush to write them down. But the central themes of dystopian novels are government control, which is uh, 1984, mm-hmm. environmental destruction, technological control, survival, and the loss of individualism. Mm-hmm. So most dystopian novels fall somewhere within there. Right. But what's the psychology behind it? Like, why do we like dystopian novels? Which I think is kind of one of the core questions that Margaret was asking. Yes. I'm so into this right now. I I am super excited because I... It is so fascinating. It is. And it's a topic that I didn't know how to approach until Mm -hmm. Margaret brought it up. And I was like, yes, this is the angle that we need to take. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret Sherfy. Thank you, Margaret Sherfy. I really hope we're pronouncing her last name right, because if not, you know, I'm sure we'll get a message about it. Yeah. It's actually pronounced Shafley. <laughs> the R is silent. <laughs> um, so the psychology behind this is, first, dystopian novels help us feel better about our existing society, which, even if imperfect, is a hell of a lot better than whatever these authors have come up with. Right. Um, so one challenge that a lot of dystopian novelists will use is thinking of a perfect world and then poking holes in it. Mm-hmm. Like thinking about, um, a book like The Giver, which from the beginning, there are obvious issues, but the idea is pretty sound. Mm-hmm. Like, um, everyone seems pretty content. Everyone kind of knows their place in life until you realize that there's someone who doesn't. And things start to fall apart. Um, But we constantly live between this, like, utopia and dystopia in our current lives. So exploring those two concepts of what is perfect and what is completely and utterly imperfect Mm -hmm. is a good way for us to see ourselves in that area of gray between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, we want to learn what to fear and what to prevent. The Handmaid's Tale is an excellent example of this. Margaret Atwood said in an interview that there is nothing in her book that has not already happened somewhere. So the entire Handmaid's Tale is based on true events. Oh my God, I hate that. I know. Now, not all of those events happened in the same place or at the same time. Right. But, I mean, it just, things to watch out for, right? Handmaid's Tale is so interesting. I have not read the book, but I've seen the first couple seasons the handmaid's world the handmaid's tale world does a really good job of 
it's it's just interesting what they care about. It's very much gender, yeah, and gender based. It's not um, there's not like prejudice or race issues. Mm-hmm. It's strictly just gender, men and women. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and race is not actually. I don't think it comes up in the book the way that it does in the TV show. Mm-hmm. Though I've only seen, I think, the first season of the TV show. Mm-hmm. I liked the book a lot. Yeah. And when it started to deviate from the book, my brain struggled to separate the two. Oh, and that's so hard to do. When you've read the book, the book is always better. Yeah. Always. Always. Changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but what might be fun is to one day come back and do The Handmaid's Tale as a book review, which is kind of a thing that you and I have tossed around in the past. Yeah, a book club. Um, we need to gauge interest in a book club. If you are interested in hearing me talk about books and the psychology behind them, let us know. Let us know. Cool. Um, Another thing about learning to fear and prevent, which is one of the things that we appreciate about dystopian novels, is going back to the book Animal Farm, which you brought up. And if you really want to understand the Trump presidency, read Animal Farm. Here's a quote. Quote, no one believes more firmly than Comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make your own decisions for yourselves. But sometimes you might make the wrong decisions, comrades, and then where would we be? So Comrade Napoleon needs to make all the decisions, Mm -hmm. even though he believes in equality. Sure. Yeah. Um, And not just, of course, the Trump presidency. There are so many issues within politics, and Animal Farm really does an incredible job of exploring the nuances of politics. It's a really, really good book, and it's not very long. Yeah, it's a short, I can't say easy, but it's a quick read. If you have um, a plane ride... Yeah. Read it on the plane. You can knock it out. You really can. Like in an hour or two, probably. Yeah. That was the first book that I feel like shaped me as a human. That really? I remember. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think I read it in like the sixth grade. I didn't read it until college, I don't think. Yeah. I read it really young. My sister was my sister's older than me, so I think she probably read it in high school. Yeah. And then I, I think I grabbed it and read it around the same time. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um I wish I'd read it when I was younger. I think it would have been really impactful. Mm -hmm. Um, But even in college, and I've read it several times since then because I enjoyed it so much. Um, And I reread it about the time that Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. So go go read it. Find it on your mom's bookshelf or library, wherever you find your books. Sorry, I'm holding multiple thoughts at the same time. Okay. The third reason that we really love dystopian novels is there's always hope. And Mm -hmm. we love the hope that comes with dystopian novels. We live for the heroes, for the solutions. Um, I've seen several memes about our generation being as socially aware as we are and how our parents raised us on, you know, the Hunger Games and Divergent. Like, we were raised with the mentality that when you see injustice, you fix it. That's Um, a great point. And I think that that's one of the things... Like, The Hunger Games was one of those formative novels for me. Even though it came out much later, it was my first, like, red light book. When I was sitting at a red light, it was the book that I could not put down Mm -hmm. pre-discovering audiobooks. (laughs) So, um, I just think that this is some of the reasons that we're drawn to dystopian novels. Because you're presented with 
a idyllic world that we suddenly realize is less perfect than we would like for it to be and there's a solution so um it's also some of the reasons that we really like um apocalyptic media so we're gonna over look at the overlap between these two um one good example of the overlap between dystopian novels or dystopian media and apocalyptic media is the tv show the 100 have you hmm. seen it? Hmm. No. So it's a post-apocalyptic world. People have been living on the space station. They send a hundred, basically teenagers, down to the Earth to. Sounds like a terrible idea. It. I mean, <laughs> and they're all criminals. They assume that the one hundred kids who are sent down are not going to survive. What but is they, this, Australia? <laughs> it's yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like the way that Australia began to be colonized, right? Um horrifically by the way right like let's you know i'm covering that that's on my list oh good um not good but you know what i mean right but the tv show the 100 like these 100 kids come down to the world to the earth um and i think the earth was destroyed because of nuclear war Mm -hmm. so they are expecting that it's still uninhabitable and these 100 kids end up being able to survive so you got a little bit of both. Um, but there are a lot of other examples that really fall into this category of both apop- apocalyptic and dystopian. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at apocalyptic, you can't talk apocalypse without talking doomsday preppers. You just can't. You just can't because the psychology of the reason that we like apocalyptic films and media is both in line with the reason that we like dystopian novels, like those same three points, and it pulls in um, the fears that people are trying to address through prepping for doomsday. Right. And it lowers your anxiety. It makes you feel like you have an exit strategy. Yeah. What's interesting to me about doomsday preppers is the reasons in which motivates them to prep. Yeah. Because they're kind of all over the place. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that. The University of Minnesota's neuroscientist, Shamel Lisek, studies fear. He says that the concept of doomsday evokes an innate and ancient bias in most mammals. The initial response to any hint of alarm is fear. And this is the architecture with which our brains are built. So why do we enjoy it? Mm. Why do we want to be afraid? Lisek hypothesizes that it might be validating. People with traumatic experiences, for example, may be fatalistic and want to seek out other like-minded people um, because it's reassuring and comforting. Like, doomsday preppers seek out other doomsday preppers. Mm -hmm. People who enjoy thinking about the apocalypse or who frequently think about the apocalypse, Mm -hmm. whether or not they enjoy it, are seeking out other people Mm -hmm. to validate that fear. Confirmation bias. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. If we genuinely believe that the end is near and we find other people who also believe that, it's less scary because we're reinforcing each other's beliefs and there's something that we can do together to prepare. We want to be able to predict our fear, which is why something like the Mayan calendar ending in, what was it, 2012? Something like that. That's also on my list. Good. I'm so glad that we're covering, like we're (laughs) hinting at so many of the things there on both of our lists. Um, But it's why the end of the Mayan calendar was so triggering for so many people. It's 
like mortality being handed to you on a silver platter. Right. It was a physical proof of an end date. Exactly. Which means that the anxiety around when am I going to die, that specific piece of it is gone. You now know the answer. Right. If you if you bought into it. Right. Um, so then you can start to figure out, okay, well, what do I do next? Um, doomsday preppers who assemble their bunker, uh, purchase canned food, make plans, etc., are engaged in goal-oriented behaviors, which, as a proven theory, reduces anxiety um, in times of trouble. It's something you can focus on and control, and that's all we ever really want. I mean, I clean yeah. when I'm feeling anxious. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the point, is when you are feeling anxious about the end of the world or the end of the Mayan calendar or whatever else, (laughs) a meeting at work you have to have, having one specific goal, one thing you can control Mm -hmm. is what helps you feel grounded again. And I think it goes back to the happy chemicals. Oh, yeah. I think it goes back to accomplishing tasks and Uh feeling productive. I think that that's a really great point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And you expect to have a long-term success like you expect to be able to survive or make something better because of it right so make surviving is great we love we love surviving (laughs) i love that for you (laughs) (laughs) according to a yougov poll in 2020 one in five americans believe that the apocalypse is coming well no shit in 2020 22% of americans believe that the world will end in their lifetime Oh, my God. What a depressing thought. Isn't that terrifying? Um, Whether they believe it's because Jesus is coming back or zombie apocalypse. Prepping beliefs encompass a pessimistic worldview that doom is imminent and people are uncooperative and resources are limited. Mm -hmm. So they start to stock up, devise plans, and figure out ways to defend themselves from others. So they basically believe they're going to die soon No one else is going to help them, and they're going to run out of resources. This is interesting because research shows that people are intuitively cooperative. We saw this a lot with, or we still see this a lot with natural disasters. Even in 2020, like, people were seeking out ways to help other people. Yeah. Passively or actively. Like, we want to help. But people who are really enmeshed in this uh, doomsday mindset believe that people will not be helpful for them that's a really good point and we see that portrayed a lot yeah like the individualistic no one will help me survive but me which is a trauma response and we're gonna talk about that okay and i wonder like how it would actually be because you know you think about you know the idealistic way things would operate it's like having a fire safety plan yeah you have a fire safety plan and you're like everybody's gonna single file out the door and then when there's an actual emergency chaos you know absolutely absolutely and i think that um people this goes back to another episode that we've done recently about black and white thinking Mm -hmm. but i believe that people are neither inherently good or inherently bad, that they're just responding to whatever circumstances are around them based on their previous experiences. Mm -hmm. So if you've never experienced anything really traumatic, like a natural disaster or, you know, fearing for your life, 
then we don't know how we're going to respond. Um, but any lived experience you have might influence that. So like for me, I like to think that I'm going to be super helpful and, you know, fly as many getaway planes as I need to mm-hmm. to survive the zombie apocalypse because I really value connecting with other people and making sure that other people are safe. Yeah. But if you've only ever had yourself to depend on, then it's natural that you suspect that at the end of the world, you're only going to have yourself. Right. Yeah. What a mess. I know. Um, according to Dr. Adam Fetterman, there are three subcomponents of these beliefs. Number one, negative beliefs about human nature and the, va- the availability of resources, which is what we were just talking about. Number two, beliefs about competition for survival. So if resources are already scarce, then we're going to have to figure out how to compete. We got a Hunger Games situation going on mm-hmm. um, to figure out who's going to be the last man standing and how do you survive. Right. Now, ultimately, I don't want to be the last man standing. Like, that sounds like a miserable existence, too. That's a good point. But that's just me. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> um, and number three, the belief that you need to be prepared. His research also found that these beliefs reflect a variety of personality traits. So low agreeableness and high neuroticism are Mm -hmm. commonly associated with people who might be doomsday preppers because of these three core beliefs. You're giving me a look. I'm thinking birth order. Like, where are you in the family? (laughs) That determines who's the doomsday prepper. (laughs) That would be a great sub research project. I'll have to see what I can do about that. Let's start funding that. You know, we can start contacting research facilities immediately or at dinner tonight after <laughs> food. We need food. Um, variety of personality traits and beliefs. So looking at political ideology and conspiracy beliefs. So if you're already inclined to believe in conspiracies, you're going to be more inclined to be a doomsday prepper. Basically, having a cynical view of human nature, the availability of resources, and our ability as a society to handle catastrophe is what impacts whether or not you're a doomsday prepper. Mm -hmm. Um, Psychology also offers insight when we consider risk and preparedness, trauma and experience, belief systems, and of course, we can't overlook mental health. Um, So thinking about mental health, Uh, Conditions like schizophrenia or paranoia may be impacting people's beliefs around the apocalypse. Yeah, sure. When examining risk and preparedness, it may not be all bad. Our brains, especially anxious brains like ours, Mm -hmm. want to be as prepared as possible for every worst case scenario. If it's possible or plausible, you and I have probably already thought of it. And that's basically where doomsday preppers live, is in this anxious place of needing to predict and prepare as much as possible. Which means that they were probably all prepared for the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. <laughs> that's a good point. If well, they w- also, they were probably contributing. I was about to say, if they weren't already prepared, then they were probably the first people to go and purchase all of the toilet paper, um, thus contributing to the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. Mm. They're more likely to be prepared for natural disasters, pandemics, and emergency scenarios. This only becomes an issue when survival as individuals is more important than collective survival or recognizing each other's humanity. So, so far we've covered kind of the two big topics. We've talked about um, dystopian novels, 
and Doomsday. Yes. Okay. So where do conspiracy theories come in? Karen Douglas is a social psychologist at the University of Kent, and she studies conspiracy theories and suspects that her study subjects, in some cases, share attributes with those who believe in the impending apocalypse. Mm. Quote, one trait I see linking the two is the feeling of powerlessness, often, but not always connected to a mistrust in authority. People feel like they have knowledge that others do not. So here's another quote from a dystopian novel that also connects conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and starting to really bring all three of these pieces together. You will prop, you've probably seen the movie for this one. You may not have read the book quote, every faction conditions its members to think and act a certain way. And most people do it for most people. It's not hard to learn to find a pattern of thought that works and stay that way. But our minds move in a dozen different directions, and we can't be confined to one way of thinking, and that terrifies our leaders. It means we can't be controlled, and it means that no matter what they do, we will always cause trouble for them. Mm. Did the word factions give it away for you? No, I have no idea. Divergent. Oh, I've never seen it. You've never seen Divergent? No, I've never read the books, no. Oh, it's so good. Um, I need to catch up. I haven't seen the last movie, but excellent. Divergent by Victoria Roth. So some conspiracy theorists could use this to highlight the ways that society is trying to brainwash us and believe that they have found the way out. Like their brains are the ones that are not um, able to be subdued. Mm -hmm. It's also providing us hope that even if society does try to condition us all to believe the same way, that it can't actually be done. We can't be controlled. Loss of autonomy is a huge fear among many conspiracy theorists, yeah. which is something I think we talked about in your conspiracy theories episode. Looking at dystopian novels and how they intersect with conspiracy theories is really interesting in that the people who survive are the ones who are able to see through whatever is going on. They're mm-hmm. able to see the bigger picture. And sure. that's where conspiracy theorists tend to live, is in this place of, I can see the bigger picture when other people can't. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, which could also contribute to one of the reasons that we really enjoy dystopian novels. And I think that this is all about balance, right? Like, you don't want to go so far down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole um, that you end up in a place of anxiety and depression or right. um, just kind of taking it too far while also questioning the things that are still around you Mm -hmm. gotta find gotta find your balance always question that's very healthy to question it is the real intersection was highlighted by steven schlossman yep lots of names here (laughs) a child psychologist and novelist from harvard med school and he says quote all of this uncertainty and all of this fear comes together And people think that maybe life would be better after a disaster. So this is the last component of these three pieces coming together. I find that very hard to believe that things would be better after it. He points out that um, tales of the apocalypse should teach us something about the world that we should avoid or should gravitate towards. Right. It's a lesson learning thing, right? Right. Exactly. And how we need to be making changes now. So I think that that's the intersection here. Right, right. Is that um, we we tend to think that if our government was overthrown, mm-hmm. not I'm not suggesting we overthrow the government, but 
if things were to be different, if we were to live in a completely socialist society, that things would be better. And we know that any extreme is not going to be the solution for fixing our society. Mm -hmm. Dystopian novels have taught us that time and time again. But what can we learn um, about society from the truths that these novels hold or from the truth of, you know, apocalypse and doomsday preppers in order to make society a little bit better today or, you know, in the coming years, regardless of what the outcome is. Right. A last quote for you is from the book The Giver by Lois Lowry, which is a four-part story. Quote, The life where nothing was ever unexpected or inconvenient or unusual, life without color, pain, or past, is the way that they describe their dystopian world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sounds idyllic. Like, we want things to be... Uh, we don't want things to be inconvenient or unusual. Like we want to be able to predict our entire world, but then there's life without color and pain and past and being able to see the intricacies of the world around us is really what does make it beautiful, which is kind of the narrative running through a lot of the giver. I think it's interesting. People assuming things are better based off of like something happening in the future or mm-hmm. things better off like oh i remember the good old days when things were good in 19 you know 45 or whatever right. to me those are both equally wrong yeah and problematic in their thinking because if you think that things were good in 1945 then then you were probably you're a white, white man <laughs> you're a white middle to upper class man exactly um, but if you think things are going to be better in the future based off of some type of tragedy, like, that sucks. Or even ideal. And fuck you. <laughs> well, and I think that believing things will be better is holding on to this optimism that maybe, um, you know, we'll all be equal one day in the future without acknowledging the work that we have to do in order to get there. Like looking at a post-apocalyptic whatever mm-hmm. type of media and seeing that, you know, maybe there there are no hierarchies. Um, everyone has access to food or the same level of access to food or mm-hmm. resources. Like, it sounds fine in theory, but it's not actually going to be doable unless you put in the work now to build up humanity, to build up a collective, you know, I, goals for survival. Yeah. Um, Be, I think about that outcome mm-hmm. of the equality. That means so much tragedy has had to take place. That means yeah. all the resources are gone. You know, 90% of the population is dead, right? Yeah. And then it's you and the last 10%. And then, like you said, you don't want to be the last one standing. What kind of quality of life is that? Yeah. What, are you going to eat corn pellets forever (laughs) with you and your family? Well, I think it's just one of the reasons that people like it, though, is they like either the perspective, they like um, the idea that you have something to hold on to or something, you know, the possibility of a different outcome than just a meteor hitting the earth and taking us out the way it took out the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Like, there are more options 
in a lot of these ways that we look at the end of the world than and potentially more favorable outcomes than ways that the world might actually end. I think it's also romanticized. Oh, absolutely. Because in all these situations and all these portrayals over media, people are separated distances Mm -hmm. or circumstances or whatever. For sure. Um, But in the event of an actual apocalypse, let's just avoid that. That sounds like a good plan. Let's do that. Okay. Because... You know, that's not going to be good for you. Realistically, let's talk about numbers here. The chances of you being in that 10%, yeah, pretty small, unless you stick with us in our zombie apocalypse survival team. There we go. <laughs> we will be taking applications beginning immediately. I will be bringing charisma. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was actually just thinking about it. My tennis shoes are sitting where we're recording and they come untied all the time. I would be, listen, I'm not who you want to take. I was about to say, you know, if charisma's all you're bringing to the table, as much yeah. as I love you. I mean, okay. I can't, I can communicate. I can, you know. That's not going to do you much good with the zombies. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. It's not for me. No. It's not for me. No. I appreciate your self-awareness, though. Thank you so much. <laughs> I think we all need to know kind of where we're standing realistically, right? I'm always looking for people's strengths. Your strength <laughs> is your self-awareness. <laughs> there we go. There we go. A very niche kind of apocalypse I think I would really thrive in. <laughs> um, but what I don't see happening in the future. Um, I feel like... In terms of a Handmaid's Tale situation, you might fare better than me. Oh, my God. Just because you're a better communicator than I am, I think. Yeah, but we can't communicate in uh, a Handmaid's Tale situation. You would be the person to figure out, like, all the secret clues and, yeah. like, the secret forms of communication. I would be oblivious. <laughs> People would look at me and be like, blessed be the fruit. And I'd be like, may the Lord open. <laughs> the end. We're done. That's oh, all I know. God, How's the I- weather? sunny uh-huh it's pretty great yeah yikes let's not do that so it's interesting because my topic has some similar elements oh so i think we are gonna have a little bit of intersection okay you ready i am my when body we come is back, ready your body is ready perfect so when we come back we are going to be talking about the wizard of oz <gasps> yay Hi, I'm Zandy. And I'm Liz. We're the hosts of Human Seeking Human, a podcast where we read the most entertaining personal ads, articles, and obituaries from old newspapers. Each week, we find each other's dream dates, read wild misconnections, and take a look at the most offbeat articles and ads from newspapers as far back as 150 years ago. We discuss everything from Hawaiian volcano murders to how personal ads played a big role in queer love life. So check out Human Seeking Human on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us at Human Seeking Pod on Instagram and Twitter, where we post some of our favorite newspaper clippings and weird ads. Hope you like what you hear, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Until then. Oh, can I start? Yeah. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Okay. And let's get into it. (laughs) Let's dive in. Okay, so The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is a children's novel written by L. Frank Baum and illustrated by W.W. Denslow. 
Um, the first book in the series, there ended up actually being 13. They really? Wrote, yeah, they wrote the last 12 after the success of the first one. I will go ahead and tell you that. Um, but the first, the, the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, was published in 1900. I knew it was old. Have you read it? She old, yeah. Yeah, me too. I used to be obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. I absolutely went through a Wizard of Oz phase, and even Wicked. Like, yeah. I mean, we both love Wicked. Love me some Wicked. We talk Have about you... Wicked briefly at the end. Oh, good. Have you read the other 12 books or 13 books or whatever you said? I, I no, not all 13, but I've read maybe five of them. I had no like idea. Like as a child, yeah. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So originally only 10,000 copies were printed of the first edition. And of course they quickly completely sold out. Of course. So if anybody has a first edition that they'd like to give me, I will be taking donations. (laughs) Um, As many of us know, the book follows a young girl named Dorothy who lives in Kansas. Mm -hmm. She and her dog Toto are swept away by a tornado and they land in Oz. The Library of Congress has declared it, quote, America's greatest and best love homegrown fairy tale, which I love. I love that, too. Thank you. The name Oz actually came from the filing cabinet in Baum's study, and one of the drawers was labeled O to Z. Is that not crazy? What a fun, fun fact. Isn't that cute? Well, fun fact Rooney. The book became such a huge success that in 1902, Broadway produced a musical version of the play, which was, again, widely successful. So this is two years after. I mean, that's pretty unheard of. Yeah. Like for them to move so quickly into a musical. Um, And finally, in 1939, the film adaptation was released where they dropped the word wonderful and what we know today as The Wizard of Oz was born. That was the first, like, major Technicolor film, right? So, the reason I chose this topic was because I always heard that this film was the first color feature film. Right. So, I started my research being like, this is the first color feature feature film. This is history. It's not. Oh. (laughs) It is not. We're going to get to it in just a second. Okay, cool. But I'm glad I wasn't the only one who had that thought. No. So, quote, an often repeated but incorrect bit of trivia is that 1939's The Wizard of Oz was the first full-color movie. This misconception probably came from the fact that the film makes great symbolic use of brilliant color film after the first scene it depicted in black and white. However, color movies were being created more than 35 years before The Wizard of Oz. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I still feel like there was something about the color in the film. Maybe yeah. it was literally just the way that it was used, but I was thinking it was like something about the, the filming itself. So we see, and it's really iconic, the the scene where she enters Oz. And it's in color and it's it goes it's a it's a scene where it's black and white and then it goes to color right so that was iconic that in and of itself it's still iconic oh still they used a body double for that scene that was actually judy garland oh i didn't know that Mm -hmm. and um yeah but that scene is super super famous was it melissa (laughs) melissa avril hello (laughs) 
Hello. The film was directed by Victor Fleming, okay, who also directed Gone with the Wind. I thought it sounded familiar. Both films were actually up against each other in 1939 for Best Picture, Mm -hmm. but ultimately Gone with the Wind won over Wizard of Oz. I mean, that movie's a commitment. It's a long-term... Fucking two VHS tapes. (laughs) Um, The script itself went through many writers and many rewrites before the final shooting. During the time fantasy movies were not very successful so it was recommended that they tone down any magical aspects so if you've read the book which i have which goes along with wicked if you've ever seen wicked um the movie takes a lot of liberties Mm -hmm. the emerald city is actually emerald green in the movie when in the book they wear they wear glasses that make everything appear to be green. Right. So the movie takes on a little bit more of like a cinematic, less government conspiracy theory side, more of like a mystical side. Are we going to be exploring more the book and like the um, allegory for money and capitalism? We are talking about the movie. Okay. Cool. We were talking about more of the movie. But cool. feel free to insert. I mean, there's just some really interesting um, ideas around capitalism that the book really explores mm-hmm. that they do take out of the film because, well, for um, several reasons. Right. But it's hashtag Hollywood. Yeah. So it's interesting that they. Because um, I, I saw the movie so much earlier than I read the book. Mm hmm. And the book wasn't quite... Like, for me, the book was lackluster after seeing the movie because I loved the movie so much. But as an adult, the book is better. Right. That's a good point. The book is more real. Mm -hmm. The movie is more mystical. Yeah. In the original um, outline for the characters for the film, the Scarecrow was a man who was, quote, so stupid that the only employment open to him was literally scaring crows from cornfields. The outline also said that the Tin Man was a criminal and, quote, so heartless that he was sentenced to be placed in a tin suit for eternity. And the torture softened him into somebody gentler and kinder. Oh. End quote. Isn't that just the worst? It's absolutely (laughs) child's movie? (laughs) Quote, several actresses were reportedly considered for the part of Dorothy, including Shirley Temple. Yep. From 20th Century Fox at the time. The yep. most prominent child actor. That was one of my fun facts for yeah. this movie. Is that it was almost Shirley and not Judy. Dina Durbin, a relative newcomer with a recognized operatic voice, was also considered. And Judy Garland, uh, the most experienced of the three. Um, officially, the decision to cast Garland was attributed to contractual issues. Mm. So, like you were just you know, alluding to, they really wanted Shirley Temple. Yeah. For the part. She was a big name at the time. Really, really big. And they couldn't have her because of her contract with um, 20th Century Fox. Yeah. So, but I can't imagine anybody else but Judy Garland in this movie. No, no, it really made Judy. So, after I realized that it wasn't the first movie in color, I started noticing some articles that were published regarding some of the darker moments of filming. And that's what I'm going to kind of focus on in my research. I was hoping that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, They're not great, so buckle up. 
Yeah, I've read a few of them, um, and I've been trying to like hold back my questions because I wanted to see where you were going with this first. Yeah. We're probably going to get to whatever you're thinking. More than likely. Okay. So, there were many reports of sexual assault of Judy Garland during filming of the movie. Judy Garland's ex-husband published a book titled, quote, Judy and I, My Life with Judy Garland, where he states that during filming, when Judy Garland was just a teenager, that she was molested and groped by some of the actors who played the munchkins. He wrote in his novel, quote, they made Judy's life miserable on set by putting their hands up her dress. The men were 40 or more years old. In an interview with Judy Garland, she insinuated that the actors drank and became intoxicated on set. These rumors have been circulated for years, but the actors have denied any harassment or drinking on the set. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Actually, that was not one of the ones that I was expecting you to say. Yeah. Also, I didn't realize she was a teenager. Oh, yeah. She was really young. Yeah. She's a wee babe. Wee little baby. So the Tin Man was originally cast as Buddy Ebsen, who was in Beverly Hillbillies. Um, The makeup department used silver aluminum powder to create the tin appearance of his skin. Ten days after filming began and ten days of inhaling the aluminum powder, Ebsen became very sick. He was rushed to the hospital where he had to recover in an iron lung. Yeah, that one I knew. Oh my God, an iron lung. I know. Which helped him to breathe. Um, the director replaced Ebsen with Jack Haley, who we know today. He's the guy that plays the Tin Man. Um, they also replaced the powder with an aluminum paste that was applied over grease paint. It is said that not being able to do his part was one of Bud Ebsen's, Buddy Ebsen's greatest regrets. He was a tap dancer. He was like such a talented dancer. Um, and this is why he was chosen as the first pick for the part. Um, the Tin Man, as we know, Jack Haley wasn't so much of a dancer. We do see a little bit of dancing in his song, If I Only Had a Brain. Mm-hmm. But really, it just, it's not anything like yeah, powerful. Yeah, it's to him about. Right. So Buddy Ebsen was supposed to be um, like a performer, like right. specifically a singer and a dancer. Victor Fleming, the director of The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, was rumored to be a Nazi sympathizer. Yep. Quote, it was reported in James Curtis's book, Spencer Tracy, a biography, that Anne Revere once said Fleming was, quote, violently pro-Nazi and strongly opposed to the United States entering World War II. According to the Fleming biography, Victor Fleming, an American movie master by Michael Srago, Fleming had once mocked the UK and outset of the World War II by taking a bet as to how long the country could withstand an attack by Germany, end quote. The accuracy of Rivera's criticism of Fleming has been disputed, however, And according to Victor Fleming, an American movie master, Revere had made her comments because she felt that she'd been cast in a film called The Yearling over another actress named Flora Robson because Flora Robson was British. So she felt she was receiving preferral treatment because she wasn't British. However, at the time of casting, Fleming was working on a film 
called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which Mm -hmm. featured a British producer and a cast largely composed of British and British Commonwealth actors. Furthermore, Revere did not know Fleming beyond their professional relationship. So, it's unclear at this time. D-bad. D-bad. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, disappears from Munchkinland um, in the scene where there's a puff of smoke yep. and a flame and she kind of just vanishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, unfortunately for her, the makeup uh, department put her in oil-based green makeup. Uh-oh. Yeah. The makeup department is really fucking up. <laughs> um, so the makeup caught fire. Ooh. And it burned her hands and her arms. Oh, my goodness. And her face. <laughs> um, she did survive... Um, she did recuperate, but she refused to work with fire again. So, but this is back in the day. This is back in the day when, like, they were just doing all kinds of stuff on set. No one knows what the fuck they're doing. No. uh, Like, stunts. They were making all these people do all kinds of shit. Um, I read something else where the director or somebody in production was, like, giving uh judy garland like uppers downers to like film late and kind of you know obviously was taking a toll on her health also she was a minor yeah presumably um the next interesting fact is quote turns out it wasn't only humans getting injured toto dorothy's basket size um karen terrier kareen terrier karen karen Mm mm-hmm uh, reportedly suffered a broken paw when Aww. one of the witch's guards accidentally stepped on her foot. Poor baby. I know. The dog, a female named Terry, Terry. in real life, she went on to be uh, to make a total of 15 films. Toto was in other movies? Yeah. I love that. Just a little successful little baby. Real also, cute. she was a girl. Needs a uh, pet publicist. There we go. Probably has one. 15 films. It's pretty I mean, great. You must. Okay, we're going to get into some serious stuff. Um, in the film, we see Dorothy's aunt, Auntie M, played by Clara Blandike. And in the beginning of the movie, you know, she's sweet. We hear about her. She's kind of the driving force for Dorothy throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, wants to get home to Auntie M. Wants to get home to Auntie M. She's like the quintessential, like, home encompassed in a person yeah, right yeah unfortunately as um clara blandi got older the actor developed arthritis and she also became blind in 1962 blandi died by suicide um her suicide note read i am now about to make the great adventure i cannot endure this agonizing pain any longer it is all over my body neither can i face the impending Blindness. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. She was 81 years old. Mm. There were also rumors, um, which I'm sure you've heard, that one of the actors playing the one of the munchkins can be seen hanging from a tree in the forest when you first see Dorothy kind of taking off down the yellow brick road for the first time. Yeah. Luckily, this is just a legend. Um, what some say looks like a small figure hanging from a tree is actually a bird. That was brought in by the L.A. Zoo. Birds aren't real. Birds aren't real. Well, that's a good point. (laughs) The crew believed that having live birds on set would make the set appear more real. 
just seven years after the death of Auntie M, the amazing, talented Judy Garland overdosed on barbitrates. Sure. The coroner ruled the death accidental. She was only 47 when she passed. And I do just want to go ahead and plug, I know we've talked a little bit about suicide. Um, if you suspect somebody or or you yourself are considering suicide, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK. Um, the film went on to be adapted in many other ways, including the 1978 film The Wiz. Mm-hmm. I love The Wiz. So good. Which is a reimagined Wizard of Oz story featuring an all-black cast. Mm-hmm. It was also adapted into a 1995 best-selling novel, Wicked. Love Wicked, it. Wicked! Which, of course, was adapted into a Broadway musical in 2003. And Wicked had such, like... Wicked was the first, um, the first Broadway musical I ever saw. Really? Yep. Um, it was the first musical I ever loved. Yeah. It was the fur. It was so many firsts for me, and I. It has such a special place in my heart. And The Wizard of Oz too, just in general. Like, I had, I collected figurines and shit. Mm-hmm. There was also a store in Blowing Rock called Oz. Do you remember that? Did you? No. Know? Okay, in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. It's no longer there, but it was for years and years and years. And that was always, I used to have, my aunt used to live in Blowing Rock. I'd be like, we're going to Oz. Cute. (laughs) Um, But I think The Wizard of Oz, you know, we've talked about its impact or its relevance to the gay community. Yeah. Um, It's also just, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow Mm -hmm. is such a impactful song. It's played a lot of weddings. It's played a lot of funerals. Yeah. We can take this out, but it's my dad's favorite song, and it's how he used to wake us up every morning when we really? were kids. Really? Well, not every morning, but when he would wake us up when we were kids, he'd walk around the house singing somewhere over the rainbow. That's so sweet. That's what me and dad are doing for our first dance. Our oh, that's what dance. my dad and I were going to do. Really? You can have it, though. Well, you can I have mean, it, you too. Get married. We can both have it. We can both have it. Yeah. We have... His, so that's my dad's favorite song. It's my dad's favorite song, too. Our dads are so cute. He likes the um, the version that is the Hawaiian guy. Yeah, the Hawaiian guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. My dad and I spent one night going through every version that we could find to determine his favorite. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Our dads are so similar. So wholesome. <laughs> so wholesome. Um, but that, my friend, is the Wizard of Oz. I love that. So one thing I wanted to bring up before we move into intersection is I was remembering something about Judy Garland doing blackface. Did that come mm. up for you in your research? No, it did not. I'm and I know that um I know that a lot of actors at the time did blackface and it wouldn't Yikes. surprise me, but I feel like she was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um that didn't come up specifically in relation to the um No, it wouldn't to the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. But just, I know that you mentioned um, that the director may be a Nazi sympathizer. And, right. Like, there Important were some other to note. Prob- uh, problematic things within the cast. Yep. So that might just be one thing to note. I didn't want to. Yep. No, absolutely. Know, not ever. Not mention it. Um, so let's talk intersections let's real do quick. It. When you're looking at the books, well, in the movie, I guess, mm-hmm. specifically. So you covered a lot of. Um, 
background for them without really talking about the plot. And I think we're mm-hmm. all probably pretty familiar with yeah. the plot. But it does kind of follow that similar dystopian trajectory. Like, Yeah. Um, I mean, she's coming into a whole new world. Uh-huh. And there are different laws, different, yeah. you know, it's a completely different reality mm-hmm. that she has to figure out. Um, she kills the Wicked Witch of the West mm-hmm. upon landing, and yep. everyone's really joyful. Wicked uh, Witch of the East, she kills. You're right. You're Wow, I got one. <laughs> I should know better. <laughs> I've seen Wicked how many times now? Um, so she, but she kills the Wicked Witch. Everyone's joyful, and it seems pretty fantastic at first. Mm-hmm. And then you start to realize that there's this fearful oppressor, or yeah, there's this oppressor who's inducing fear, right? Um, that she's trying to overcome. And you realize that people maybe aren't quite as happy as they see as they seem on the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, so it still follows that kind of heroine journey yeah absolutely things aren't always what they seem yeah i mean it is ultimately about survival for her because she's in this place without a home right and she's trying to get back to her family Mm -hmm. and her home and her sense of normalcy yep so i guess in the way that um dystopian novels help us feel really comfortable about inhabiting the space between utopia and dystopia in real life She's getting a first-hand look at, you know, what could this alternate reality look like and be like? Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, I really... Home is better than this. Yeah. Like, even if I'm surrounded by magic and I have these ruby shoes and, you know, I could have all the things that I want, I really just want to be home. I get that. Like, when I'm traveling, I'm like, <laughs> shit. I just want to be home. What's interesting... um, they kind of create this dynamic in the movie where Dorothy very much favors the scarecrow. Uh-huh. Um, originally in the in the writings also there which got cut out, but there was some type of love interest. Oh. Because they couldn't fathom having a movie without romance. Oh, interesting. So they created this this backstory with the scarecrow and Dorothy where mm-hmm. she obviously favors him. I mean at the end she's like I'm going to miss you especially you and as the viewer you're like wait why? Because all that shit got cut out. Yeah. Um and she just has a favorite. Well, and I think that that actually probably plays into the Gregory Maguire copy or writing for Wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, where Fiero, who is Alphaba's love interest. Oh, good point. He is, is the, the scarecrow. scarecrow. Yeah, if you haven't seen Wicked, go see it. Like, immediately. What are you doing with your life? Wow. Um, And I don't know whether that that portion was in the beginning with the actual character who's like... Because when when she's in Kansas, we see these characters. Yeah. And they're the ones in her dream. They're like the stable hands. Right. So I'm not sure if the romance took place in Kansas, so then that translated oh, okay. into dream world or if it happened it was supposed to happen in oz right itself. right oh interesting mm-hmm. it's a good point um yeah yeah that's fascinating mm-hmm. i also i just went like back up through my notes about why we like dystopian stories and the three things that i really pointed out was we feel better about existing in our society which even if perfect is far better than mm-hmm. the you know society that we're presented with which yeah. is totally true for Dorothy yeah like even 
I mean, if the romance story had been kept in, she still, it may have been originated in her her home. Her Kansas life. Her Kansas life, yeah. Uh, we learn what to fear and what to prevent. Mm-hmm. So she learns, you know, the importance of having people that she loves and trusts around her. Yeah. Um, she's learning about, you know, oppress- oppressive regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I think in, I think the Wiz does a really good job of making thing, things seem time sensitive. Oh, seem yeah. scary. Right. Because in you know judy garland's version of the wizard of oz everything's kind of like with a positive twist on it the wiz is a little bit more fantasy but real right like it's a little bit more scary because she's like where am i going the scene with the munchkins is like super scary they peel themselves off the wall do you remember seeing that for the first time i do uh I was like, this is weird. <laughs> I've only seen it, I think, two or three times, and it's been a really long time. So it's I'm going to really, have to go really back good. and watch it again. Really, really good. Um, but again, it's a twist on it. She seems less, she's less of a teenager, more of an adult. Right. Um, and, you know, the you, you can feel the pending doom a little bit more yeah. from, from the Wicked Witch. It's, and then the third thing is hope. Like, mm-hmm. the third re- reason we really love dystopian stories is the hope that it pre- presents. Like, there's a solution. Mm-hmm. There's a hero's journey. Yeah. Um, so, I think that even though this doesn't actually qualify as a dystopian novel or movie, um, it has a lot of those same characteristics. And I think that that might be one of the reasons that people are really drawn to it. I agree. I agree too, and and being able to to leave that space so like it just ties up with a bow. Yeah, you're you know you go into, and that's why media is so you know it's escapism, right? You're right. going into a situation that's stressful. Your hormones and your chemicals are rising, and then they're able to fall in a right. You know, controlled, managed, mm-hmm. and then then there's a solution at the end. Yeah. Um, I think it would be really interesting at some point to cover um, the book version of The Wizard of Oz. And I know that because we didn't, you know, discuss the differences between the two, that it would be difficult to do an intersection based on it. But there are some really interesting ways to interpret the book so that it is about capitalism and like the gold standard and Mm -hmm. um, looking at the scarecrow as... Um, agriculture, the Tin Man as industry, um, the Cowardly Lion as yikes. business, big business, big business. Maybe that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that when you're looking at it from the lens of politics, then it becomes much more dystopian in nature because it does have the political uh, control aspect, which is one of the like five big central themes in yeah. dystopian novels: is good government point. control. Um, politics and survival. And, you know, and the fact that it's being marketed and written for children, too. Oh, know. absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's plant some, that seed. Yeah, exactly. And there's some really well done, like, dystopian novels. And we'll have to do some research and see if this actually qualifies for the book. I don't think the movie qualifies. Mm-hmm. Got it. But I'll take... You know, 
pushback from whoever wants to <laughs> challenge me on that. Well, perfect. Well, awesome. Yeah, love it. This Very was good. Such a fun topic. So fun. I loved yours. Margaret Patreon. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely um, love it. So if you are wanting to choose a topic for us, head on over to our Patreon website. It's patreon.com slash podcast without an audience. And if you donate at any tier, you're going to have access to our close friends um, group on Instagram. Sure. Which is where we post all of our fiance Ray (laughs) (laughs) propaganda. Obi. Obi, Also us. Uh, It's just a lot more personal content, less about the podcast. Um, But then also at a certain tier, you're going to be able to choose a psychology, history, or cult topic for us. So there's definitely a lot of benefits. Also, people on our Patreon are going to get first dibs on the merch that we are... um, going to be releasing here in the next couple months yeah so definitely definitely check it out also hopefully we'll see you in nashville um on august 21st head over to chick shit pod uh instagram for more information and thank you guys so much for listening if you support us blink twice if you're out there keep listening thank you for listening to podcast without an audience Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook or find us on the web at podcast without an audience.com. Shoot us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.